In the end, the Evergrande situation will be similar, particularly to H&A Group. I think right now they have not filed for any bankruptcy cases yet. Their hope is still getting the money through, but the likely end of Evergrande turns out to be much more similar than people realize. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the premier weekly podcast that dissects the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. I'm Bernard Leung. And lately, the Evergrande story pervaded the Western media with major impact to China's real estate industry and potentially a contagion that might trigger a blowback to the financial system for the rest of the world. To help me understand this better, I have Ren Li Tian, Director of Modern Alpha from Wisdom Tree Asset Management, who I have brought on today with a recommendation from Rayma, a friend of the podcast. Li Tian, welcome to the show. Thank you, Bernard. Since it's your first time on the show, we always want to ask this from our guests. How did you start your career? It's a little bit long story. So I was trained as a software engineer in 1993 to 1997 at Peking University. But I took some economics class on the side. And then when I came to the U.S., I started graduate school directly in economics because that's what my interest was. And I had a stint as an associate economist at Federal Reserve Bank in Chicago and learned some macroeconomics. And then afterwards, I got a PhD from University of Chicago, worked briefly as a quantitative risk model, then focused on asset allocation funds, like targeted funds. Our last eight years have been mainly on quantitative factor research, mostly in equity, but in FX and foreign currency and other asset classes. The last two years, it's been a little bit switch off. You know, before I probably spent you know, 20, 30% of the time on China, but this year it's 70%, more than 70 sometimes. China becomes, uh, you know, more of focus of global investors. And we also have China and emerging market strategies. We invest in private Chinese and emerging market uh, firms. So fortunately, I grew up in Zhejiang. For people who are familiar with uh, Chinese geography, that is the center of private business. It's, you know, one of the richer provinces. That's why a lot of policies like common prosperity was experimented in Zhejiang first. So I have a huge family. I have like 21 first cousins, uh, numerous second cousins all live in the town Hendian, which for people who follow China news, it, my very hometown, which was totally unknown to anybody, but is now become famous because it becomes a kind of a little Hollywood. You know, there are a lot of movies and TVs that are made in my little town. So fortunately, because of these background, you know, coming from Zhejiang, went to university in, in Peking University, I was able to quickly find people to talk to on this year, which really helped. What is your current role and coverage in Wisdom Tree Asset Management and how did that get started? Yes, yeah, so I joined Wisdom Tree about three years ago. We manage portfolios across asset classes and countries. We, we are a global firm. We have a pretty big operation in Europe as well. We're a very innovative shop, I would say. In a lot of areas, we do something a little bit different and a little bit new. Uh, for example, for emerging market, we have strategies that only invest in non-state-owned uh, companies, which this year, I think many people realizing, you know, how different 
I would say probably last two years, with a lot of state-owned companies got sanctioned by the U.S. government, and we were lucky. We really pretty much avoided all of those uh, state-owned companies because we believe, you know, and and I firmly believe because I grew up in Zhejiang. And absolutely understand the difference between state-owned and and non-state-owned companies. It's everywhere, whether as an employee or as a manager. So we invest strategies that only in non-state-owned, not just in China, but India and whole emerging market. And also I do quantitative investing research. We have active funds, factor, you know, multi-factor funds. So I, as a as a director of Modern Alpha, I help Wisdom Tree implement strategies that combine the outperformance potential with active management with the benefits of an ETF structure. So the last three years, most of my time is generally split between multi-factor research plus emerging market. And of course, China is a very big part of emerging market. Before we get to the main subject of the day, I just want to ask you this question. In your career journey, what are the interesting lessons you can share with my audience? It's weird. I feel like when you're starting giving people lessons, you're getting old. <laughs> but uh, the context is very important. I'm more than 40 years old. I think now I realize some basic lessons that sound simple, but hard to do year in and year out. Those are still the good lessons. You know, do what you like to do, work hard and learn hard. And even when things seem not going well and, you know, be authentic to friends and colleagues. I think these are things which looks easy to do, but if you have to do it, you know, consistently, that's still hard. These are the lessons I I, I found just for myself and for my own kids. I think that there are a few things, you know, maybe I could have done better, like, you know, be a little bit more social, more hands-on, maybe even play more office politics, and sometimes more risk-taking. But a lot of these things, looking back, maybe would help my career. But it's, you know, life moves forward. So generally happy, you know, do the things that makes you sleep well every night. (laughs) And that comes to the main subject of the day. I wanted to get you on the show to talk about Evergrande and its impact to the Chinese and global economy. This subject has been ongoing in the Western media. Evergrande is one of China's largest real estate developers and is a conglomerate based in Shenzhen and listed in Hong Kong. It employs about 200,000 people and indirectly sustains about 380 million jobs. And that's based on the data I got from various news outlets. It's founded by Xu Jiaying. It made its money through building residential property the group has actually invested in electric vehicles, sports, and theme parks. I know it owns a football club called Guangzhou Evergrande. It even owns a food and beverage business selling border water, groceries, dairy products, and other goods across China. My first question, why is Evergrande as a conglomerate getting so much spotlight as compared to the tech companies in China recently? I think actually part of it is because of the tech companies. Starting last November, when the end IPO got into trouble, right? And then there's been more Western media attention because the end is usually a very big holdings of a typical Chinese portfolio. So, I mean, ours included. So I think it's because of the tech and then the education uh, regulation debacle, which I have been writing and tweeting about it. And that has been a center. And then when Evergrande comes 
it, it kind of rides the wave of the attention that's being already paid to Chinese firms. So I think that is why Evergrande had. And on the other side, it is indeed you know, a big company. It has 300 billion in debt and its second largest real estate developer with a very high leverage. And also, you know, you mentioned the CEO, the founder has a very larger than life in Chinese imagination. So I think it was, you know, both from the media point of view, it, it's a good story that can attract uh, people's attention. Uh, on the other hand, there are people who are invested in these companies. If you look at, you know, real estate in a typical Chinese portfolio, it's less than 5%. So it's not direct impact. And Evergrande has almost no business outside China. So the effect to the world is really third order. You know, the first order is contagion to the Chinese economy. And the second order is China's impact on the world. So the direct impact of Evergrande is actually not that big. I think people, so it's a combination, uh, a combination of you know, people's already paying attention to China, people already, you know, invested in China, many investors own Chinese equity and uh, bonds. And this year, there's been so much news on China. And then suddenly, you know, Evergrande comes in, and it's a different kind of company that could potentially bring problem. So naturally, I think people pay attention to it. Can you provide a comprehensive overview of the real estate industry and the guidelines known as the three red lines that's issued by the Chinese government? Yeah, actually, I want to get on a little bit details of the history of it. But I would say these three red lines that is important, but it's actually not the most important. And, and I'll go into detail to explain. This is the beginning, but what's really making these real estate firms in trouble is actually the other two regulations on banks. So on top of those three red lines, which is uh, liability to asset ratio, that cannot be more than 70%. Net debt to equity ratio should be less than 100% and cash to short-term ratio of no more than 100%. These are the guidelines the Chinese government set down one year ago. It started to be effective January 1st, 2021, but these are guidelines. And actually you will see that some of the companies in trouble, if you look at these ratios, they look okay. Recent uh, company in trouble, um, Kaiser, they were in yellow or green. They are not in red if you use these guidelines. But the other two lines, which are actually more important, because this is where we say actions are, speaks louder than guidelines, because the guideline is not a hard line. But the two lines that the government give is to the banks. So essentially, the depends on what kind of banks you fall into. The government want have uh, some hard number in terms of how much percentage of your portfolio should be in mortgage loans and how much percentage of real estate firm loans on your books. So those went effect in January 1st. And I think those turns out to be more important because you know, guidelines, the, the three red lines is just kind of to know which companies are in trouble, right? Like could potentially in trouble. But the real trouble comes when the bank started to, to slow down loans to you and also making the consumers less likely to get loans. For a while, you know, consumers are waiting for like a couple months to get their mortgage approved because the banks didn't want to cross those lines because they have uh, another two lines that they are asked to hold off 
to limit the exposure to real estate firms. So these are real actions that makes the credit crunch much more realistic. The three red lines is good. It's you know for people to kind of know which companies in these measurable statistics, how bad they are. And, and indeed, Evergrande was crossing all three red lines. There are eight companies that couldn't meet any of these three lines, but Evergrande was the large one and then got into credit crunch earlier than the other ones. So I think that is the context. And the real estate sector is very important for Chinese economy. Depends on how you estimate, but it's 25% of the Chinese economy. So if the whole real estate sector is going to grow less, which the government do intend to do. But if, if they grow suddenly, you know, very less, then there is possibility, you know, for contagion. But I think as of now, the government is actively still trying to contain the any spill over effect. So I think in, in the beginning of the Evergrande crisis, I was together with a lot of other people as well to say that, no, this is not like a Lehman moment at all, because there are several reasons. First, this is already known. This idea of government actions and guidelines was not started just, you know, in September. It was started last November, October, and people been knowing about this. I think it it just Evergrande was really large and that that was really big. And then then all the other news about the other companies, not just Evergrande, uh, got into news. So I think Evergrande itself, I don't believe it's like a Lehman because in a Lehman, people don't know who owns what and feels like everybody's going to fail. But uh, in, in the Evergrande case, it's probably not just Evergrande, maybe like close to eight or six or eight or, or 10, depends on different people you talk to, companies that are in trouble. But there are also a lot of uh, very high quality real estate firms. They are doing okay because they've moved ahead of the curve by trying to get the money, trying to get the sales going. So I think that that's really the context of those three red lines. Why has the problem exacerbated till now? I mean, we already know they violated the three red lines. I think they were open to tell the government they did, but the problem seems to be festering until this stage. So what happened in between? So I think for Evergrande, there are already a few kind of uh, bad signs before. So last year, they were forced to do a press release. There was a rumor uh, that they were asking money for help uh, from Guangdong province because they were short in money. And even in Chinese news, he you know, got a few of his uh, older friends to, to put up some money to help him tidy over the, the credit. So I, I think it's not news that Evergrande has been in trouble since last year. But what really is the last straw is that there are actual debt, both in Chinese onshore and offshore, those are due and they have to you know, put the money to pay. And then people suddenly, they, they couldn't pay. So there's a very high, at, at that time, I think people realized that they probably don't have money to pay. On the other hand, you know, it, in the end, they did pay the interest payment, you know, after the 30-day grace period. But I think by that time, people realized that indeed they are in a you know, huge credit crunch. Not only credit crunch, but if they were to liquidate, can their assets cover all the debt? There are various estimates on it. Some optimistic ones that feel that if there's no credit crunch, they're probably, you know, 10% uh, short. 
So that's not a huge number because you know 10% of 300 billion is 30 billion. But there are some who say it's more like you know 30%. So that that would be 90 billion. That would be a little bit bigger. So I think it really the last straw is you know finally when they need to pay some bond, particularly offshore bond. Usually Chinese firms that didn't want to be in, in the news. Uh, so they generally will pay the offshore bond, but they they have a trouble paying that. I think that becomes more real for people on the street. But you know, for people who's been following Evergrande, I think they were they were in trouble long long before this. There are unhappy citizens who are protesting in front of Evergrande offices in China. How are they being affected by the whole situation? A lot of them bought wealth management products from Evergrande as they tried to raise capital when it couldn't sell them, couldn't get the capital from the banks. This is a pretty common practice in China. And actually, a few other companies, Kaiser and Shimao, Jia Zhaoye and Shimao, they recently in headlines in last week about the firms that helped sell their wealth manager products they couldn't meet to pay up. These products pay extremely high interest, by the way, more than 20%, sometimes, you know, 10 or 20%. So this news is a bit mischaracterized by English media in the beginning. First, it's not as widespread. And secondly, it also didn't get much sympathy for ordinary Chinese citizen. It's not really the kind of protest where people sympathize because these products pay extremely high interest rate. So most Chinese view the people who invest in this as uh, when it's in trouble, you want to bail out. But when it's good, you're getting 20% a year. So actually, you know, this was, I wouldn't say it's widespread protesting at all. It And this happened in China many times. You know, the, a lot of companies try to raise capital through this way, sometimes even through, you know, kind of directly selling some of their products, which in the gray line of whether that's legal or not. But I personally, you know, sympathize with uh, a lot of these investors. But these kind of, you know, things happen in China so many times. And I had personal family who are very well off and you know, it's ensnared and putting, you know, a couple million Chinese yuan into these kind of very high yield, you will say even junk bonds, right? But they don't, they sometimes don't see it. And so most Chinese know they won't get much back. And this really has no bearing uh, on this whole Evergrande situation. It's a, it's a very small thing on the whole Evergrande situation. What happens to people who have bought their homes and then Evergrande hasn't completed the projects? Then what happened to that bucket of people then? So that is probably where, you know, Chinese government is uh, very hands-on. In some way, you can say very paternal. It, it, I, I try to think that in China, the relationship between uh, individual and government is very different. People in Singapore probably know because uh, in some ways, uh, Singapore in many ways is very similar in China. As soon as the Evergrande uh, situation becomes very headline, the government was very all out to say, you know, the bottom line is if people already bought the houses, Evergrande needs to build. That is priority number one. And that has been generally the case. So those people who is actually, I wouldn't say highly impacted, but they were least impacted. Most of those 
people who bought houses expect to get their houses. Now, in some situations, maybe, you know, if the project hasn't started at all, you know, those kind, they may, you know, get just get their money back. Or, you know, people, some of them will be unhappy. But generally, you know, you don't hear too much news from these people because um, the government was pretty straightforward in the beginning that the other debt holders can wait. These people need to be taken care of. From the point of government, that's what they have a heavy hand as well, because they don't want citizens to be starting protests. Because if these people started protesting, then people do have sympathy for them, you know. So this is very different from the from the people who invest in wealth management products protesting. You pointed it out clear. I mean, the way even from me, from a Singaporean who think about China is like think of Asia parent, there are no carrots, only a stick. <laughs> so I want to ask, what is the Chinese government's position on Evergrande? I mean, they have asked the founder and CEO to use his network to pay their current debts, but I'm sure they are also doing some things behind the scenes to try to alleviate the situation as such. Behind the scenes, absolutely. Central Bank in China really have no interest in bailing out Evergrande. And that for people who understand China between the central bank and local government is, is actually pretty clear. I tweeted very early on that the province of Evergrande is headquartered in don't really have enough money to bail them out. So Guangdong province, the central government sees its job in containing the fallout. The local government uh, has more incentive actually to get a good outcome because local officials don't like companies failing, when, which will lead to bad mark on, on their performance review. Local government officials generally are, you know, reviewed based on the economy, uh, how, how, how well the economy and how well they have stability. If there's some protests on their hand, it will look bad on their career. So local governments, you know, actually don't want the companies to fail and don't want people protesting on the street. Although it's going to take um, more detailed, you know, digging by journalists, generally it is assumed that, you know, many Chinese CEOs have lined their own pocket while running the company. So Evergrande CEO has a very flashy and, you know, largest in life image. It's dealings for land acquisition over the years is, you know, impossible to be squeaky clean. So not mentioning the, the kind of wealth manager products and how they sell them. So he's likely having some offshore vehicles where dealings are not necessarily 100% clean. So I think uh, this is where China doesn't have a very law-based liquidation system. So the headline may focus on this angle uh, using personal net worth. But from my understanding of Chinese situation like these, the CEO's focus right now is can he do something to stay out of jail? The personal money at this point is not even, you know, the focus point I, uh, anymore. So I understand, you know, in the uh, media, but this is where sometimes being an entrepreneur can be uh, a little bit brutal to, to work in the Chinese environment. You know, the growth, the opportunity is there, but if it gets into trouble, then you know, the law is not necessary as as easy as in the West. You know, a lot of the CEO dealings could be easily cast as a, as a problematic or, or as illegal. There are similar examples of Chinese conglomerates, for example, HNE Group, Anbang and Huarong, which have encountered similar problems in taking on too much debt. 
and this got them into trouble with the Chinese government. How did the Chinese government help these other companies to resolve their situation? And it seems very, very different from the approach that they're taking from Evergrande, or maybe it's similar, but it's just not that obvious to the people from the outside watching the whole thing inside China. Yeah, actually, this is a great point. On the other hand, I will say that in the end, the Evergrande situation will be similar particularly to H&A group. I think right now they have not filed for any bankruptcy cases yet. Their hope is still getting the money through. But the likely end of Evergrande turns out to be much more similar than people realize. So let me get a little bit of details. For this H&A group, if for people who are not familiar, highly recommend. It's Hainan Airlines parental group and how they are resolved Right now, they are going through the final stage of China's bankruptcy court. Only, I think, last week, the final plan of splitting into two or three, I think, four separate uh, sections of HNA just got approved in the bankruptcy court. And the thing is that the, the reason where I feel Evergrande itself is not, uh, not a Lima moment is because China already have a lot of experiences how to deal with unwinding these very large firms. In the HNA situation, the bankruptcy court even forced the company to pay a token 30,000 yuan to the wealth management product holders. So in that way, it's very similar to the Evergrande situation. In the normal legal proceedings, these wealth manager products has very low seniority. So they almost will not get anything. But in the Chinese system, there's still, you know, a little bit discretion by these judges. So they usually will give uh, some of it to the individual instead of institutional debt holders. So the process is actually, if, you know, if it gets to the very end, it's likely to be very similar. The government may line up, the local government particularly, some investors to take on assets. You know, that it will be a little bit like the Suning case. There's another Chinese retailer got into trouble. And then the local government, Nanjing City, they are able to, you know, it's hard to use the word, whether they ordered or enticed or, you know, whichever way you say, but they were able to get about, you know, six or seven, eight other private firms to line up and then take equity in a Suning case. Now, if Evergrande ended up that way, you know, that would be probably one of the best outcome for them, because in that way, the central government doesn't have to do anything. And then the local government have this issue solved. But my feeling at this point is the local government, the Guangdong province, hasn't able to do this yet. So it's something, you know, absolutely very interesting. If they're not able to do this, then in the end, you know, Evergrande is likely to go go the routes of bankruptcy uh, situation like an HNA group. So there's a range of options, but my read is that, you know, right now the government is just trying to buy some time to try to get the other contagion situation uh, under control. And also the real estate sector is so important in China. So I think they don't want to kind of rock the market, you know, one more time. So it seems to be moving slowly. But in the end, uh, you know, if they cannot pay up like HNA, they're going to have to go through the bankruptcy court. 
I'm born in Singapore, but my family heritage came from uh, Guangzhou, Zhuhai in that region. And you just take a look at Shenzhen, you have the top tech companies living there. And I'm pretty sure if you look at Guangzhou, it's probably one of the more richer cities with pretty powerful Chinese companies. Surely there's still a possibility for the Guangzhou province, provincial government to try to get all these companies to try to help. I remember a situation, I think China Mobile or the second largest telecom, I think it was built out by a combination of Tencent, Alibaba and a couple of companies on that. Yeah, so that's the situation. I'm a little bit less optimistic as you. I think the Guangdong province obviously wants to to contain this within the, the provincial. That is what generally the local bureaucrats are incentivized to do. First, you know, they're very politically entangled with, with Evergrande. If Evergrande goes down, some, some government officials are, are more likely to go down as well. If Evergrande goes down, a lot of investigation will turn out. A lot of government officials, it wouldn't look good on their personal and political career. But, you know, Guangdong province, most of the money is in Shenzhen, not in Guangzhou. So I you know, mentioned that this, this body called the Guozhui, which is the Chinese state-owned assets supervision and administration, which has a very large role. Because if you think China is 60% private-owned, that still means 40% is government assets, right? So these organizations, Guozhui, they have, if the local, local Guozhui is, is rich, they could line up you know, private investors, and also put up some of their own money. Unfortunately for Evergrande, Evergrande is a city that's native to Guangzhou, and they recently, you know, moved their headquarters to Shenzhen. But in China, nobody will think of them as a Shenzhen company. So, you know, the Shenzhen government, Shenzhen city is extremely rich. Out of 500 billion of shareholder equity of, of this Guozhui, only 83 billion is controlled by the government, uh, by the provincial uh, level, which means, you know, a majority of those is, is in Shenzhen. But Shenzhen is probably not in, in the kind of mood to bail out Evergrande. Uh, Shenzhen Shiguozui is very famous for doing a very good investment. They were the original Suning bailout person. Then they found Suning to be not a good asset. And they got rid of it. So for, for Shenzhen government to come in, the one that has money to come in and then bail out Evergrande, it's going to be either a very steep cut on the assets, you know, the, the kind of price they, they're going to get. And right now, it doesn't appear to be so. Because if in so many months, Evergrande was in trouble since last year, keep in mind, you know, there was a leaked document saying that they were asking money from last year and still up to now, there's no action on that front yet. So I think I'm a little bit on the pessimistic side. Can you help me double click into what the state-owned assets supervision and administration, which you mentioned as Guozhui, what the agency is? Is it a federal agency or is it more provincial agency? And how have they actually been managing some of these debacles for the private conglomerates, for example, HNA Group and Huarong, through the local provincial governments? 
In China, there are a few very powerful, and usually power means money, you know, a few powerful government entities. So this is part of the government entity. Some of the people are familiar with, you know, the National Development and Reform Commission. So that is the one that, you know, holds the purse string when every level of government wants to spend money. This Guozhui is the state asset administration that essentially manages at every level of the Chinese government the, the pool of assets that you own. So it's not necessarily a, a federal or state. It's at every level. So at the you know, above to the county level. So you by do Google, you can, for example, you can search for Guangdong Guozhui, like Guangdong asset SASAC, or you can say Guangzhou. Uh, because the city have its own and even like in a smaller county level like I grew up in Dongyang so Dongyang also have a Guozhui so these are government entities it's one of the most coveted jobs in many level of Chinese government aside from you know those top political roles it's almost a bit like the private equity firm uh, arm of the government for some cities like Shenzhen, where Tencent is headquartered, their Guozhui, SASAC, you know, State Asset Commission, is so rich and they act like a private equity shop. They, they buy and invest across China, not just in Shenzhen or, or in Guangdong. Now, another province and Hefei City, which is Anhui's capital city, both of their Guozhui, SASAC, are made a billions uh, of bet in hard tech companies like a BOE and was in very popular press and dubbed, you know, the best pea shop in China. So this is a point where, where I personally think is very important uh, to understand uh, bailouts in China. Evergrande is a private company. Central government really have no interest to bail out because central government only do things that's going to make them look, look good in people's eyes. And Chinese people generally, you know, is more uh, capitalist than, than in the U.S. You know, they they absolutely do not like bailing out private firms. But, you know, in, in every aspect of private business major news, if you pay attention to news, you know, very clearly, the this SASAC, Guozui, uh, has its hand. So, for example, I, you know, tweeted out uh, ends credit scoring venture. If, if people are following... Um, you know, Alibaba and Ant's potential for, an, for another China IPO. You, you've read about, you know, Ant is being asked to separate for the payment system and the, the data system and also the credit scoring venture. In Chinese, it means Zhenxing. So there, you if you look down in the news, the credit scoring venture, which is also partnering with two entities, Managed by Zhejiang and uh, Hanzhou Guozhui uh, SAC. So in the Sunian bailout, as I mentioned, you know, 19 city lead the other uh, private firms using the money from the state asset uh, commission to bail the private firms out. So it's we're going to hear a lot about this Guozhui uh, in many many dealings of China as. Because state-owned economy is still, you know, 35% or 45% of the GDP. Guozhui seems to sound like state-owned private equity firms who just go out and acquire assets when they need. I think they're a little bit like a leverage buyout firms. 
if I were they, to think about that. They, they generally don't do too much leverage because still they are, you know, scrutinized, right? But they, they have a significant amount of capital that they could deploy by investing in companies. So they are, it's unlikely for them. I, I don't think they are allowed to go and you know, take loans from the banks, but they have assets to deploy. They have money on their hand. And you know, a case like Evergrande is that they sometimes help the local governments deal with these failed firms so that you know, local governments are very worried about two things. One is unemployment rate, so that you know, a lot of crimes, and the other is the economy not doing well. So for them to deploy this money, sometimes pop up some failed companies so that not in a lot of people might become unemployed, will continue to get some jobs while government buys some time. So this has not has happened many times in China. Actually, a few times some local government bought some you know, companies, private firms uh, in, in bankruptcy. Partly is to keep the company, you know, kind of going on for a little bit of while so that you, know, you don't have certain unemployment of a significant amount of people. Excluding the Chinese media, what are the things that the media outside of China get right and wrong about Evergrande? For example, I mean, the one that is most clear is the contagion similar to the Lehman collapse to 2008. Yeah, I think the media probably made too big a deal of those protests and also didn't put Evergrande in the context of other companies like HNA and Huarong restructuring. I think if they had put that in a in a bigger context like HNA and Huarong restructuring, they will realize it's not something which is like Lehman, you know, so nobody knows who, who owes what and suddenly the system fails. I think another thing which I think not helpful is a lot of media also in suddenly projected their own political views on China to Evergrande. So it kind of politicized Evergrande, which in some ways is unavoidable. I felt that I should be more cynical now. I think uh, before I still felt Evergrande more, was more uh, business news. But you, you see a lot of commentary saying, you know, Evergrande's fall is China's fall. And keep in mind, you know, a lot of these English media are actually quickly translated into Chinese. So a, a substantial number of Chinese are on Twitter as well. So I think when I joked to a friend, when I saw, I think Kramer seemed something like, yes, you know, we want Evergrande to fail because that's good for us. You know, it, 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 it'll be bad for China. And those kind of rhetoric, I think uh, when I see that, I kind of said, you know, jokes, I said, the more political Evergrande become, actually the better life Evergrande could have. Because suddenly Evergrande is cast as a political issue, and then Chinese government has the incentive to make it not as bad as you know English media was kind of uh, rooting for, which I, I think those are not helpful in understanding the Evergrande situation. So what is the likely end for Evergrande based on the present situation? I think you have also laid out some scenarios that would happen, that would look likely to happen in the next couple of months, maybe a year to untangle at all the debt that they're having at the moment? I am still not very optimistic, I think, on Evergrande. I think that they are just buying some time by paying recent interest. The real estate sector is going through uh, industry consolidation. So 
the the good ones are likely to survive, and there are a few ones who are going to you know go down. And Evergrande's assets just don't cover that. Now, if the government felt that they really don't want to have any of these bankruptcy on hand, they roll over all the debts indefinitely. They ask the banks to to lend in indefinitely. Then it has a tiny chance of surviving. But I think it's still very, very low. It, it felt like the government right now is like a bond squad, you know, working on Evergrande and a few other real estate firms, but without hurting too much uh, the rest of the economy at once. So recently, HNA is in the news with its bankruptcy plan approved by a court. It is hard to predict a single company unless we do much further research. But actually, my baseline of Evergrande is similar to the one month ago that when I write the article. Many thanks for coming on the show. And in closing, I have two questions. Uh, the first is any recommendations that have inspired you recently? Um, the past, past two years being so busy with kids at home and work. Sometimes I felt so exhausted because, you know, the kids' education really, you know, just last two a couple of weeks, there was an election uh, in the U.S. And you know, mostly people realized for suburban parents, you know, education is really the number one issue. And in some way, I can totally understand because, you know, there are things, you know, like climate change is 60, 70 years down the road, but your own kids is right now, you know, so a lot of those sentiments, which I, you know, I can, I can absolutely share and, and focusing on China, you know, this year, it's been really hard because 12 hour time difference essentially you are on when at night and during the day as well right because the news uh, comes both from china and and the, and the offshore you know chinese companies trading news so focusing on china last couple of years feels like never ending uh makes work feel like every minute uh generally i love reading history and literature books recently in the last two years i I read Splendid and the Vile. It's about World War II. In, and also read The Man Who Solved the Market, which uh, two books I read in detail. I also read a lot of um, Greek mythology uh, that my daughter was reading. So she's writing some stories on uh, those Greek gods and Roman uh, gods. So I was kind of learning together with her. There are two or three books that I hope to read uh, during the winter break, but uh, I'll tweet about it. Uh, I love British TV shows, so sometimes I will watch Victoria or Upstart Crow, those a little bit comedy uh, shows. And uh, my kids are 10 and 7, so I also want them to learn some uh, Tan poetry, which I both my you know husband and I grew up learning. I don't know whether um, your kids are into this, but I was very much interested in, in teaching kids, teaching my own kids. I think that's the most uh, beautiful part of a Chinese language. So I spent some time reading friends. He had uh, books on reading Tan poetry and then teaching my own kids on those. So last two years, it's really been kids and work. I haven't, haven't read too many books or, or watched much TV. So how can my audience find you? My company has an excellent website. It's wisdomtree.com slash blog. That's where my colleagues and I sometimes, uh, we write it every day. 
I also is on Twitter. So my Twitter handle is easy using my name at L-I-Q-I-A-N underscore R-E-N. Sometimes I, I will make some quick comments uh, on what's going on in my Twitter account. I have a you know WeChat subscription account, but I have just been so busy. I haven't been able to uh, keep it up and, and write anything. So those are mostly our media. And thank you, you know, for this podcast. Uh, sometimes I will uh, get on podcast and then, you know, we will go into uh, more deeper. We recently actually started our own podcast as well. But my focus is much more on businesses. So we talk about, you know, what Chinese firms, you know, we talk about some education firms, some healthcare firms. So we drill down and talk to either the, you know, executives or, or investor relations or people of particular Chinese firms. We also talk about energy, you know, obviously for China, real estate is 25% of the economy and it is the number one risk. So we, you know, this is where our attention was. And in the next couple of months, I think, you know, Real estate, energy, this are top top news coming out of China. So those were the things I'll probably tweet about. And central bank, you know, that's I love to tweet about China's central bank. That's my kind of probably because I work at the Fed in Chicago, so I always have a personal interest in, in central banks. You can Google us anywhere or find us in any podcast platform. Uh, of course, I was thinking about your comment just now on Tang poetry. And actually, if you are living in the 70s, when you're born in the 1970s and growing up during that time, for Singaporean Chinese like myself, who grew up in a traditional Chinese family, I actually knew how to read the Tang and Song Dynasty, uh, Tang Shi San Bai Shou, wow. and also the blue Chinese calligraphy as well. So I actually had that. Uh, oh, great. Hey, actually, <laughs> like, same here. Culture, that was inculcated by my grandfather. So once again, Li Tian, many thanks for coming on the show and I look forward to speak to you again. Thank you so much. Run it, run it, run it.